Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor and chief critic. Joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor at large. And and we are proceeding through the fall award season. There have actually already been some Oscars handed out. If, if, if the Oscar season could just end with the Governor's Awards, we'd have a lot more time to get geared up for Sundance. But I guess we're just getting started, although it was nice to see some pretty great speeches, at least from afar. One of the, the stuff that I saw seemed like it was a pretty amazing night to see Lena Wertmuller and David Lynch all on stage getting the kinds of awards you hoped they'd gotten a long time ago. What was it like for you in the room? Oh, it's always like shooting fish in a barrel. It's it's like all of Hollywood is there and they cram it the way they, they sort of do it is is each of the studios has a has a table and they cram their their tables and some of them like Netflix had like multiple tables they cram them with all their talent um you know so you had Tarantino sitting with Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Rothman from Sony and Pedro Almodovar coming over to talk to Greta Gerwig about and and she's she's there with Saoirse Ronan you know it's like it Oscar contenders insane. mad libs or something it was insane it's like- and then and then you know but when you're watching the action so you're, you're there's like a, a lengthy cocktail period where you where which basically gives so Quentin Tarantino was like there at the very beginning and I was like the person he knew <laughs> and then he came over and then I introduced him to Anthony McCartan, the uh, writer of the two popes. And it was fun listening to the two of them talk about how, <laughs> how they're, how they get caught in the weeds of, of, of research and how you have to step away from it. And it was, it was two, two wordsmiths. Yeah. Also, notes. both of those people play with the, with the facts. That's I mean, right. Anthony McCartan is known for, for kind of be, being like, well, I'm, I'm telling a story. I can take some liberties. And Tarantino certainly takes that to a certain extreme. So that's a pretty hilarious pairing. You it was did funny there. talking to Tarantino. He was saying that he basically he'd started doing some research, got sort of blocked by it. And then, um, and then he wrote, he was talking about Inglorious Bastards, really. And then he wrote the, you know, wrote the movie. And then he went back and double checked everything to make sure that he wasn't saying something that was completely crazy. And he found, he found that there were some things he completely made up that turned out to be true, that he could back them up when he did the, the sort of deep dive. And he doesn't use Google. He goes, he reads books. Well, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. I mean, he's certainly less of a Luddite than he used to be because we know that he does Facebook and stuff. Maybe even listens to podcasts. But yeah, it's true. He he writes screenplays like poems. So it's funny. Yeah. But, uh, so that I always get. Us. I always enjoy a little a little access to old to old Quentin. But um, the uh, the you know it was fun to go over and and say hi to Constance Wu from from uh, Hustlers who who actually said that she didn't find it brave at all. She loved the filmmaker and loved the script and thought it was a great opportunity. It was like not even a. Um, a, a, a question mark for her, and and uh, and she, by the way, remembered having a great time at our IndieWire Honors party. She said, "She said that was a great party." She said, <laughs> "I said, yeah, you and Bill Hader, you got." You it was a slightly better party. Well, I mean, she got a little more attention than she did at the Governor's Awards, I assume, because it's yeah. such a crowded room. Well, one of the things that I think is is fascinating to hear you talk through this stuff is that you know a lot of the people are. They're on the campaign trail. They they go to this thing. It's all, it's an extension of their own awards campaign to be there. To what extent do you feel like? I mean, 
is 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 the campaign in the room for somebody like Tarantino or Pedro Almodovar that's or Greta Gerwig? Yeah, that's you know and that's totally why he came. Yeah, they just got to talk to everybody. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's you're never going to be in any one place except the actual Oscars themselves, where there's so many Academy voters in one, in one room. And that's exactly what their purview is, is to now he participated in in the Lena Vermuller video. And he was very perceptive about, you know, what sh- what she did and why she was good. And 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 Greta Gerwig um, participated as well. And 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 you could you could see uh, she and. Greta and Jane Campion, who, of course, are two of the five women who have ever uh, received an Oscar nomination um, out of and Campion was amazing. Campion played out dramatically, like counting down in, in hundreds, you know, how many men actually have been nominated uh, over all the years and, you know, to the five women, um, it was hundreds of them, hundreds, like 350 or something. Um, and then, and, 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 and no, you know, obviously Catherine Bigelow was the single winner, but she wasn't there. Uh, so they had two, they, I think they tried to round up all five women. Um, and they had, um, uh, Sophia was on the video with, with Quentin and uh, Greta and Jane presented in the room. And it, it was, it was also, um, Women were part of the conversation with with the other honoree, um, Gina Davis, who had a great career. I mean, a, an awesome career, and actually won for Accidental Tourist. But but she, you know, has turned her her uh, attention and and definitely took advantage of the room to make a case for how much gender equality, uh, how far it still has to go. And yet, there is this real open question of of just. I mean, it's great that they're able to do this because the academy can just choose who they give these awards to but there is a real open question of of whether or not we'll have one or any women nominated for best director this year like many years prior i mean maybe greta i mean maybe have you uh, seen little women yet no i haven't i'm just saying there she was i'm not allowed to talk about it yet (laughs) um i don't know i mean the other question would be um I mean, I can say this. I can say that I'm pretty confident that that Saoirse Ronan and Florence Pugh will be nominated. But the uh, screenplay and director categories are, are really competitive. And I think Mari Heller has a good shot for uh, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, which is... I'm curious to see how that film gets reintroduced into the conversation because I, I thought it played well in Toronto, but it was also a very busy Toronto. And it, it feels like there's just a lot of the stuff that people are talking about right now. But I agree. I think that she's a, a great filmmaker and took something that could be really mawkish and did some more surprising things with it. So I, I hope that people talk about her in tandem with the other aspects of the movie. You know, the last film that she did... I think her contributions kind of got buried in all the conversations around the performances. So, well, the unfortunate thing that happens is that uh, this is a terrible aspect of, of our world is that one person seems, you know, a woman, the woman of the year gets chosen. If you see what I mean, there isn't a com there, there won't be, you know, three women in that category. There will likely, if there are any, there will be one. And Greta's been there, and Greta is an auteur, which is an advantage. She's a writer and a director. So the respect is there. And an actress who has, you know, a charming 
profile. You know, she works it really well. Um, my instinct is that this will be Noah Baumbach's year with Marriage Story. Her husband will be sh- very much in the limelight with Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson and Laura Dern, all of them. Um, and was Noah there? Was he in the room? Absolutely. They were working it together. Good, good. Power well, see, that's couple. an interesting balancing act, though, right? Because they're also technically competitors this season. They are indeed. In they are indeed. So that interesting dinnertime conversations. Maybe he'll write another movie I about it. I think those two love each other <laughs> to death, and they have a new cha- a new baby, which is part. And they're writing Barbie on. together, supposedly. So <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, supposedly. I don't know the state of that project, but I'm curious to know how it continues to develop. So there's certainly a lot of of compelling characters this year making the rounds. Bong Joon-ho, did he make it out? He did. He did. There was a huge A24 presence, Pattinson and uh, Defoe there for uh, the lighthouse. Bong Joon-ho for, for uh, oh, and then don't Neon. Don't forget, that's, that's Neon, Neon was there. otherwise they'll kill us. Uh, so Neon and Parasite, and uh, and there were, um, you know, Adam Sandler and the Safties, the little gang from Uncut Gems. That that's a hilarious I know you gang. Do. I know you do. <laughs> and, and so, you know, there, there was plenty of, of uh, I would say, though, it was an interesting, I mean, the, the Netflix uh, side of the room, you know, you just felt you felt the power there. You know, it's interesting. There's a Hollywood reporter cover story right now that has all the studio heads on it. Um, and, and so you have Toby Emmerich from Warners and Don Langley from Universal and Jennifer Salke from Amazon and Scott Stuber from Netflix and, and, you know, the rest, you know, Jim Giannopoulos from Paramount. And, and um, I think uh, I'm leaving out a couple, but they are, Definitely uh, looking at a challenging world, and that's what they talk about in the piece. It's worth reading. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of it's it's a hilariously dense new market with all these new platforms coming up. That I think the rest of the world we've been talking about it forever, but the rest of the world's just starting to realize, like, holy crap, I'm going to have to figure out where I want to open my wallet and which library is most compelling, and how is this going to affect what I go see in a theater versus watching at home and all that kind of stuff. And Netflix is kind of like, well, yeah, we're a few steps ahead of you in that respect, but also probably facing an existential crisis because that special thing that they've done for a while is now no longer so singular. It's interesting uh, to think about how the studios have certain advantages. If you think about it, Netflix has had to focus on the, you know, the content and, and finding ways to fill in the missing gaps that the studios aren't, aren't filling which they definitely have done with romantic comedies and, and, um, and, and quality. Some of the quality movies that the studios aren't making, like the Irishman, the studios really didn't, didn't want. Um, but, but you also have marketing prowess. And you, so there was this Warner media HBO max presentation this week, which I actually listened to the whole thing and have, and if you compare it to the Apple plus one, the Apple Plus one was this incredibly beautifully orchestrated marketing feat that was definitely aimed at consumers, right? They've been doing this yeah. for a long they, time. They invented this, yeah. Exactly. This, this was game. this was very much John Stanky of AT&T, and, and he had some Warners people, and he had some AT&T people. This was aimed very squarely at Wall Street, and they were speaking a lingo that was like a foreign language to me. 
a business yeah. lingo. And, and they it had was, to explain what they were doing in a way that that, that contingency could understand more than anyone else. That's what he, that's what he did. He didn't care about the consumer. He wasn't aiming this no. at the consumer. And the consumers are confused as hell by HBO Max. They're no like, question. Wait, so do I get old HBO or not? And all that kind of and stuff. He said this so. very provocative thing in the middle of it. He said, well, it's like an IQ test. If you figure yeah. out that you can get twice as much, then you'll go get it. He was like challenging. If you're smart enough. Consumer. Yeah. <laughs> it was really, it was really it's bad. Hilarious. And, and, and uh, you know, if you look under the hood and figure out how they have to make all of these deals with all these different middlemen, like, um, you know, the cable companies, you know, I, I have spectrum cable. I'll get HBO. I continue to get HBO go through that. I have to use their password. I can sign up for HBO max. You know, is it going to be on a Samsung smart TV? Is it going to be, uh, if you have AT&T, you get it, but I don't have AT&T. You know, it's, I it's think a- all of this stuff, it, it's going to settle with time. And and they, they do have time to figure this out. They certainly have a compelling library coming together. I mean, maybe not as robust as the Disney one, but Disney is better. Of- it's clearly way ahead in this whole area. Of course, but that's they're, Disney. They're, they often are. They're, they're going to do very well. Well, I'm curious to see what the user interface is going to be. Um, uh, AT&T was interesting because they were they were talking about compelling content for the for the for the consumer and, and engagement with the consumer. But I do think that's a foreign idea to some of the studios who are used to just sort of advertising to the consumer. And not yeah, you got to look at your data. Together. Right. I mean, just to come back to Netflix, that that is what puts them ahead of, exactly. of these new competitors is that they've been making data driven decisions for a long period of time. But let's get deeper into the Netflix side of it and, and back to what you were saying before. So Netflix had this show of, of power in the room at the Governor's Awards. And here comes the Irishman, which is opening theatrically this week and, and will continue to be in theaters for 28 days. But just how much do we think that this is going to be a different kind of experience for the company than it was last year with Roma. I mean, yes, they rented out some theaters. They've got uh, a Broadway theater that's never shown movies before and the Paris theater. That's nice that they reopened those doors for that. But is that going to change the... I think they may actually try really hard. uh, From what I understand, they're going to try to actually nail that one down. And 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 pay for, keep know, it going. Pay. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Belasco is a one shot, and uh, that was just an opportunistic. And the Belasco is only showing the movie once a day, right? It's like a theater. It's as if it were a theater show, right? So, so it's have, really only showing the movie for a week. For, it's like not was it nine it's at shows night, or something? And then like they that? have yeah. matinees. You know, it's, oh, there it's are matinees, and okay. they're closed on Mondays. It's just like a theater. Oh. They have to follow all the all the theater rules. I like that because it makes it feel like a real event. Although, honestly, I'm not sure that sitting in, 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 in one of those theaters for three and a half hours, I guess people do it for the theater, um, usually with an intermission, though. I mean, look, we watch movies at New York Film Festival and Alice Tully Hall, and that's where Irishman had its world premiere. That if it, um, They'll do what they can, I'm sure, to make it comfortable. And I'll be curious, and I'm sure people will go. But it, that feels less to me like a theatrical event and more like a special occasion kind of a thing, whereas oh, Paris thing is a real theater. So what happened was that obviously uh, Scott Stuber um, at, at Netflix between last year and this year tried really hard to work something out with the theater chains and he couldn't do it. 
I mean, it, it just, they, 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 they could not come to a meeting point um, where, where they would make a, a, any kind of, of deal. So, so he's, he's had, you know, in LA, they, they did finally book uh, the Cinematheque, uh, the Egyptian theater, um, and, and they're going to show it there. And, and so it's, it's just, but this is a movie that calls for a theatrical real theatrical run and they're just not going to have some of the bigger, better houses. Um, the other thing that happened by the way, this week, which, which is, uh, I was thinking about this Netflix is of course booking the landmark in New York and LA as they did with Roma and this venerable, really special uh, theater chain that caters to the independents. And, and it's a very specific specialized market and they've been doing it a long time. They lost their chief guy, Ted Mundorf. Um, Charles Cohen is the head of that. and owns But honestly, I mean, Ted Mundorf was moving in slow motion to the exit sign for a while now. I mean, it seems unlikely that he was going to stay under the Why new ownership. Why do you say that so definitively? Well, there's this sense that, okay, I mean, how I, do you I know, know that. Well, I, I mean, I, I talk to a lot of people but the sense that I got was that uh, there was I think there was less it, of a need in that sense. It's the wrong way. I would say to you that the ultimate clash of the titans here between yes. him and Charles Cohen could be predicted, could be foreseen, but in no way was Ted Mundorf heading for the exit sign as if there was something wrong with what he was doing, or as if he had um, you know wasn't vitally responsible for whatever success they've had. The problem is that there's a serious problem in specialized exhibition. And if it, whether, whether uh, it's hard to argue that anyone knows how to do it better than Landmark, but exactly. And Charles he's been the Cohen secret sauce. May think so is my point. I mean, Charles Cohen may think he knows better than, yeah, that's exactly. Right. Well, that that's essentially what I was saying. It's, it's the, the clash of the Titans. But it, it is a real loss, but it'll be interesting to see what his next move is and whether or not this loss impacts well, how Landmark they, operates. It's a question of who they bring in. Well, that will be a very telling sign of whether they have a shot at even surviving, honestly. Yeah, it's. A, I mean, it's obviously a perilous moment for the theaters, and many different facets of the industry are very sensitive about these issues. And with respect to how Netflix interacts with theater owners and, and the theaters that decide to show their films, I do wonder how this conversation will evolve across Oscar season because, you know, they, they can do like, you know, in your old math problems in high school, where they said you had to show your work to get the credit. They can show Hollywood that they did everything within their power to book this movie in a bunch of different theaters. But if they, at the end of the day, only certain theaters are willing to show their movies, the idea that the Academy would somehow, you know, be anti-Netflix as a result seems sort of confusing. But at the same time, I don't know. Netflix. The reason the studios are anti-Netflix is that they're still existentially threatened by Netflix. Disney, well, maybe everybody's existentially so. threatened. I mean, maybe you know, the medium is existentially threatened. So. But but the day by day, they are competing with a deep pocketed uh, entity, and that entity is 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 challenging them and doing very well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's we talked about this so much last year. You know, it's like, yeah, I guess a lot of people are threatened by Netflix. But a lot of people also work for Netflix or. 
you know, on occasion will work for Netflix or eventually they'll bring their passion project to Netflix because, you know, Disney Plus isn't going to green light it or whatever. I mean, that that at least still seems sort of singular. So well, I there do must think, be some respect there. I do. Um, I, oh, there's respect. I think I think I think what um, Scott Stuber has been trying to do and Ted Sarandos as well. Interestingly, getting the Milestone Award from the Producers Guild uh, this year, which which is interesting. Um and it's interesting to me that the Hollywood Reporter would would actually say that Netflix and Amazon are two of the major studios, which they aren't. I mean, really? That's what the headline said. And I was like, that's not accurate. I mean, I think of them as a powerful, powerful entity, a streaming entity, a production entity. But the word studio implies that you have a lot, that you, that you and once upon a time, major studio meant that you had theaters, <laughs> well, Netflix does kind of have a lot. You got to at least give them that. Amazon, no. Amazon's something else. Amazon's a, a, a technology company that that you know has a, a little movie business on the side, essentially. And Apple is, but I don't know about Netflix. Apple is also, and I think Apple is facing. I th- it's interesting that the two uh, streaming Silicon Valley entity, you know, the two entities that are coming into the into this world, Amazon and and Apple from Silicon Valley are really not doing as well. Netflix is different. Netflix really is a Hollywood entity. It is. Yeah, I mean, they've been hanging around there for a while, too. So it's not like... But the thing is, it was conceived as a movie and TV entity, first and foremost. That's the thing. It's like they've been a technology disruptor only in terms of the delivery method. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see whether or not this shifts because Apple has all the money in the world compared to everybody else. So they can buy their time and figure things out. They, I think they can afford to fail. They can afford to fail and Amazon can afford to fail. But you could argue that these are businesses that they are quite foreign to. And, and they don't they don't you know, the first reviews on the Apple stuff has, have been very negative, really. Anyway, the Irish. Yeah, but they're not terrible. These shows are not embarrassments. They're just kind of. Which is maybe an easy starting point. Yes, but part of part. I mean, when Netflix started, they started with House of Cards. I mean, they just threw the the hundred million dollars down on the table, and David Fincher and Kevin Spacey, and they didn't mess around. That was a must see right out of the right out of the gate. Yeah, I mean, it it was sending a different message. Well, we could go on for a while about this, but there's another technology award story that we should get into, which is the Academy Screener situation and Academy. Uh, voters being able to watch films online. So you got into the weeds with this and it's it's kind of interesting because it, it's almost like a whole new industry in award season in terms of the, the way that distributors have to pay to get their films viewable there. So how is that all going to fall out? It, it is interesting. I had heard an initial figure of 10000 that the distributor would have to pay, but um, we've gotten word back that it's actually $12,500 uh, plus the It's not cost. chump change. Yeah, plus I mean, that's not, that, of, that's of, not. Of, 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 of like watermarking the thing. So, yeah. so they're, they're, they, they used to be very afraid uh, of doing this, but, but they're, 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 they're being forced mainly you know, by their decision to move the awards up so early to February 9th that they're actually quite concerned about the Academy voters getting a, a chance. You know, there's an there's a rhythm to the Academy Awards. The rhythm is, you know, this. by the way, the screeners have barely started to trickle in. It's already almost November, right? And- yeah, I mean, it's inevitable. Everybody wants, I mean, I, 
as, as somebody who sees a bunch of stuff throughout the year, I still appreciate the shoebox. It fills up with screeners. And I know a lot of other people don't see everything until those screeners show that's up. So point. that's the natural rhythm. And it hasn't changed, really. I mean, there's a lot more um, activity going on. And the governor's awards themselves were earlier by three weeks than they used to be. And all, everybody came into town for that and did a lot of activity. So that stuff is ahead of schedule, but the actual sending of the screeners is not. And not everyone in the Academy is going to sign up for this, but there's a there's an app that they have and you can use a Apple TV with the app and it's like an Academy app that you can download and get and and you can watch anything they're, they're starting to load up there's a limited number going up now but they're they're showing that if you can handle the technology you can see a lot of the movies online you can just pull it up on your on your iPhone but most the same device <laughs> I'm very aware of this because I talk to people you and I Honestly, Eric, you and I are way ahead of most of the people in the industry in terms of all the movies that we've seen. And most of them haven't seen a fraction of them yet. Well, you got a lot of work to do. And they and they really, I mean, people need to take this opportunity seriously, I would say, because I've, I mean, I run into so many people who say they haven't seen enough stuff to vote in certain categories or they just kind of, they vote blindly because of campaigns and stuff. But this is a real opportunity, I think, for people to be more engaged voters because the access Maybe well, that's very better. much what David Rubin, the new president, is 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 absolutely trying for. And then the other thing that's going to happen, um, they're going to open up the foreign language too to a to a wider group, which is so important because those are the, usually the best movies worth talking about anyway of all the stuff. And and the the short list tends to miss some things, so that should make a big difference. I mean, at least in theory. But again, it's all about how proactive people are being if you need to watch the damn thing on your iphone just to catch up with it all you know when you're sitting in the back eric, of your uber on the way to work eric, come on eric, no do the work no <laughs> i like i'm not saying do that i'm just saying whatever it takes don't tell me you don't have enough time i find this very very um interesting really because they're 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 trying to keep up with the times at the same time that this is not seeing films in theaters. They're saying, yes, we're still having Academy screenings. We encourage you to go to the theater and see the movies in the theater. Of course, they're going to say all of that. But finally, their own decision to bring up the awards to December to, to February 9th is, 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 is making them make, tell, tell the, in effect, they're telling the, they're telling the Academy members to see it online. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, and, and, I, I want to on Netflix. I have to take this opportunity to repeat a joke I told uh, as a host of the New York Film Critics Circle dinner in January when I said that if you get bored over the course of tonight, you can always pull up Roma on your cell phone because you still can. I mean, like this 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 idea that um, so you know horrifying. you don't do that so horrifying. Uh, people do it and 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 it's it's i mean i'm not saying it's the future of cinema but it's certainly one potential out, output deal that that people have in their in their households now the, fact so. that the irishman is three and a half hours long um they did show it at the academy and there was a fairly good turnout but they, it wasn't like they were turning people away and it 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 does suggest that you know there are going to be a lot of people who want to watch it at home on the comfort of their sofa yeah, and take bathroom and breaks and stuff. Their own intermissions. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll have to break down when those actually are because there's a few different ways you could slice it. But uh, there are some other big movies we can talk about quickly. I didn't see Terminator. 
What do you think? Best of the franchise? No, 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 no. <laughs> no. Sacrilege. No, no. The first movie is great. The second movie, T2, is the ultimate movie. And James Cameron, like, changed film history in that movie and morphed, uh, you know, uh, used morphing techniques and visual effects and things that had never been done before. And I have to say, um, you could skip every single one after that. They were all horrible. Yeah, and the third one was okay. I don't know about that. And this okay. one is the sequel to T2. So it picks up after, uh, you know, about 40, 40 years or something now. So so uh, you have a 60-year-old a uh, Sarah Connor and you have um, uh, a 70-year-old uh, Terminator played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. And they're basically the two uh, stars of the movie, um, which is very uh, centered on women characters. Uh, uh, so you have... Uh, it's, it's a, it's well, very- the franchise always has been to some degree, right? Well, I mean, Sarah yeah, Connor is the hero. He was willing to do that. And so, um, you know, famously, uh, Linda Hamilton, uh, you know, buffed up and didn't eat carbs for a year and, and wields all of her, you know, armor, uh, all of her guns and everything. It's, it's, she's great. Arnold's fun to see again. Um, finally, I agree with David Ehrlich uh, that this one's okay, but you know, they really shouldn't do another one. It's enough already. I but mean, I like these people the can't be doing sex. I did. Um, and <laughs> well, of course. They're really good. And there's a couple sequences there that are just, jaw dropping and i'm tough that stuff has to deliver yeah at this point especially in this franchise when you know coming out of t2 which was such a groundbreaker it's like you really do have to deliver to keep to keep that side of of what makes this franchise compelling in the first place but also i mean schwarzenegger's 70 how much longer can we go with this before it's like wheelchair bound terminator you know rolling up to people or whatever so it won't be with him it's clearly (laughs) his last one um but you saw one that i didn't see yeah, so I saw Doctor Sleep. Technically, I guess it's opening in uh, a little bit, but it's um, Doctor Sleep is a is a very bizarre movie because it's a sequel to The Shining, which King himself wrote. So it's an adaptation of that novel, but it's also kind of designed as a sequel to the the movie. So it takes place. It starts in 1980, uh, which is you know when the movie came out, and it's in, it's and it, it follows. Danny Torrance, the son of Jack Nicholson's character, into his adulthood when he be- grows up to be Ewan McGregor and is himself a real alcoholic and still has that shining power and sees dead dead people everywhere. And he basically, it's what's what's it, what's compelling about it is that Mike Flanagan, who did The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix, is a good horror director, and he he kind of recaptures the atmosphere of The Shining to some degree and this kind of mournful quality, the way that it's all kind of this metaphor for addiction and childhood trauma and uh the and the character of danny in the shadow of his father is forced to re reignite those demons to to confront his past by joining forces with a young girl who also has that shining power and they team up to stop this ragtag group of evil people who suck out the souls of dead children it's really hard to explain it all it's it's a long movie with the <laughs> it's a lot of complicated mythology building, and I think that's where it stumbles to a large degree. It's not as well written as it is conceived, but um, I, there's some really strong visual stuff that they do. And when they get back to the Overlook Hotel, while I wouldn't say the movie 
that totally delivers. It, it's fun to revisit it and to kind of see how they, they try to build on the environment of The Shining. So if you're a diehard Shining fan, I think it's worth watching just from a craft standpoint to see what just how difficult it is to, to, to re-engage with Kubrick's vision. It's an interesting failure in that respect, but there, there's some stuff to appreciate about it. So I actually saw The Shining when it first came out. Um, and and if you were a fan of of the King, Stephen King novel, and you sat there and watched the Kubrick movie for the very first time, it hit you in, in the face. It, it it was not an adaptation of King's novel. No, and King never it was liked Ku- it. Yeah, exactly. It was Kubrick's version of it. Well, then and this so- movie I think is going is fun to to look at and talk about in that context because it's sort of wrestling with both of those things. I think it's it's beneath both the source materials because it's it's just sillier. The story is sillier, but it is trying to reconcile those differences in, in, a, in a fascinating kind of way. And it's sort of like there's the internalized struggle with addiction that's very key to the way King writes. But then there's also this. Um, this kind of haunting atmospheric quality in certain moments that feels more Kubrickian. So it's, um, it's an experiment. It's a long one. It's two and a half hours. I'm not, I don't think it's going to top all the Irishman or, or marriage story or anything like that in the fall season conversations, but you know, a little counter programming for uh, this time of year never hurt. So um, here right. we are. And uh, next week, I guess we'll get deeper into uh, other festival stuff that's coming up. Doc NYC, AFI Fest, all that good stuff. But I hope you enjoy the weekend, man. You too, Eric. Bye-bye. Bye bye.